I'm Mario Munoz reporting for the Rio Grande Guardian International News Service. The fastest internet available is coming to Rio Grande Valley schools and libraries. The Universal Service Administration Company has just approved $6.7 million in funding for the Orion Project at the Region 1 Education Agency. Region 1 Chief Technology Officer Ali Kulahut explained the scope of his work and the details about the Orion Project. It's a lot of, of course, internal technology uh, uh, affairs, such as keeping the lights running, making sure our data center operates properly, providing services to our staff here so they can go out and do their work. But the bigger part of it is really interfacing with our school districts, understanding what the needs of our technology directors are, our colleagues and our peers, and then working to facilitate either providing them access to those resources they need, facilitating that access, working to identify cost savings or working on economies of scale with them. Um, a lot of what we do is go out and we try to approach things as a consortium-based effort to take advantage of collective buying. Um, and then that's just in the technology area. The service center as a whole provides professional development services, um, augmented teaching services, things of that nature. So it's a service-based organization to support educational goals in the classroom. And where did you come from before uh, arriving at Region 1? Tell us a little bit about your career. Sure. Uh, so I started out as a network faculty at South Texas College, actually. I taught for about five years, uh, transitioned over into operations there, worked as an HR systems analyst for a while, made my way over to Core IT, became the Assistant Chief Information Officer. I was at STC for about 15 years. Uh, transitioned to uh, UTSA, University of Texas in San Antonio, and I was the director of research technology there for several years. Fantastic institution, learned a lot there. Um, all of my family and friends are here at home, and when this opportunity at Region 1 became available, uh, a colleague of mine told me about it, and I decided to, to give it a shot. And fortunately, I guess I've met the criteria, and they brought me on board, so I've been here at Region 1 for about two years now, and it's been an incredibly rewarding experience because it's been the first time that I've actually had the opportunity to, to shape and lead the way technology is being implemented. And I'm sure you coming up in your career, there's those certain things that you've identified where if I had the chance, I'd do it differently. And my boss, my our executive director, has given me the opportunity to do some of those things differently. So um, it's been awesome. Yeah. And in this period of time, um, being here at UT San Antonio, um, STC, I would imagine that the uh, technology that interests you, that impacts your work and how you try to, to help you, the institutions you work for, the technology must have really come on over the last you know, five, ten years. You know, the, the speed of change, the, the improvements that have been happening in, in, this te in this digital technology, you've seen it Absolutely. firsthand. Has it been a big change? Absolutely. I mean, if you think, I'll go a little bit further back than that. Yes. I graduated high school in 1995, and at that point, the internet was just starting out. It was purely for entertainment and information purposes. University libraries were typically your main point of access, and it was all text-based. There was no graphics or colors or any of the any of the tech that we have now. Fast forward just 10 years, just a decade, and you have the introduction of things like Facebook and MySpace and Twitter and eBay and Amazon and just these megalithic services that bring the world to your living room. I mean, the fact that you can buy something that was thought up in America and designed in China and brought over by boat to a port here in the States again, just it absolutely blows my mind. 
Um, that's on the service side. When we talk about core technologies, of course, the underpinning technology that you see in the data center, the things that most people don't have familiarity or, or, or interaction with, that's increased by leaps and bounds. But what people have built on top of that infrastructure, when you look at the technologies that are in the classroom, um, I'll give you a great example. My staff just a couple of days ago showed me an awesome virtual and augmented reality uh, lab setup for school children studying anatomy and physiology in school. They're able to take a frog and turn it in 360 degrees, zoom in and out, see the innards, remove uh, viscera and so forth. I remember when I took anatomy and physiology, we had to work with a dead rabbit that stank of formaldehyde and actually cut it open, wear the hazmat suits and all that. Just what we can do today in safe environments that are built for learning is absolutely fantastic. So um, to answer your question, yes, it has increased beyond a rate that I even thought possible when I come from this field. And So is the world of education embracing that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. You and I may not see it because we're not in the classroom anymore, but just the fact that a student and a teacher can maintain communication outside of school by using a parent portal, the fact that parents can be involved in seeing what the progress of their children is, that's on the periphery. Inside of the classroom, we're seeing concepts now that are being scaffolded by technologies that actually let a child pick up and touch and do without just reading off a page or being lectured at. It's I don't know if you're familiar with the concept of active learning, but to get the child involved, to actually do what it is that they're talking about, to, to bring project-based learning into it with the advent of these technical approaches and, and tools. Um, I think the kids of today, honestly, have so many more advantages that you and I do, and I don't, I don't know if you interact with children on a daily basis, but it seems to me they're a whole hell of a lot smarter than we were back then, much more aware of their environments and so forth. So um, yeah, technology in the classroom. Oh, I didn't even mention distance education. Proximity or geographic location is no longer a barrier to getting instruction that you might not have had available. Um, you mentioned colonias when we were talking a little bit earlier. You know that we're in a very economically depressed area. The majority of our students come from an impoverished background. Over time, slowly, the lack of access to education is eroding because now if there's a district in Boston that has innovated an approach to teach mathematics or science, they can very easily share that over the internet and a child can sit and watch that live and interact and talk to the other students and actually take advantage of these things that were developed thousands of miles away. And do the rules allow that? Absolutely they do. Um, really it's just building the infrastructure to allow for the ingenuity to come in and, and take advantage of it. Oh, I want to... What you're saying is, 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 is incredible and... Um, People are going to really enjoy listening to this, that, the, that uh, education embraces this technology and that uh, these opportunities are there today. But uh, this, this little story, very, very recent story I, uh, of, um, happening I learned of will bring the, you to a screeching halt, I'm sure, but hopefully you, you'll be able to address it. Uh, I was at the um, State of the City address for Brownsville Mayor Trey Mendes, wrote about this at the time, and he wants to make the digital divide, reducing, eliminating the divide, a top priority with his new administration. He made his State of the City, that was one of the key parts of it, and then a school, a school board member for Brownsville got up, his name, because we interviewed him after, afterwards, his name is Phil Cow Cowan, and he told the story of a student, a high school student at Porter High School who was going to be a valedictorian, valedictorian and uh, she had to get a speech ready 
and the principal asked her to email it to her and she was going door to door the principal said where's your speech I must review it tomorrow's the day you're going to give the speech she had to go door to door in her neighborhood to find a family that had Wi-Fi and she she got her paperwork in at something like 10 in the evening mm -hmm. and interviewing the uh, school board member afterwards Mr. Cowan he said those stories are not unusual I mean they, they can be typical so many areas in the valley and you will know this obviously do not have internet at home so you've got great ideas and, and, and great technology happening in the classroom but the kids can't do their homework at night yeah your thoughts well that last mile has always traditionally been the problem and it's you you could sit back and say it's a very easy solution we should just provide metro wi-fi across the board and and on its surface that is that is an easy solution it sounds like it would work but it's actually a rather complicated problem because you have a lot of stakeholders that have vested interests you have you have the schools that want to be able to make sure that the children are able to transition from a learning environment to the home, but that the learning continues because learning should be lifelong. It should be, it should be uh, supported by the parents, but it should also be applied when they leave the school, so that it actually sticks with them and they build upon it going forward, rather than the I take the exam and forget it two months later. Um, you have the providers of the services, the telecoms, that have gone through a significant amount of investment to put the infrastructure that currently exists in place. And trying to be empathic, stepping back and putting yourselves in their shoes, if, if you are a shareholder for one of these telecoms and the idea is that we want to bring internet to very remote, very rural places, their main concern necessarily because of the capital system that we have is how are we going to be able to establish a revenue stream off this. So they have that difficulty, trying to make the logistical part of that work. And then you have the expectations of the students and the parents themselves. And getting all those three to jive is, if it was easy, it would have been done already. I would love to sit here and say, you know what? The solution is everybody pays a little bit more in taxes and we provide Metro Wi-Fi. But I can't make that decision for someone who's not in my shoes at my same economic level, at, at the same level of opportunity that I am. You just, you just can't apply that kind of a solution. I think what really needs to happen is that across the board, from our legislature down to our constituents, we need to decide that education truly is a priority. Once we make that decision, I think everything else falls into place. Because when you have your goal set and you're moving toward it, then the ingredients that you throw in are going to be much easier to acquire and, and, and to throw in. And if, if Metro Wi-Fi or if a better solution, 5G Internet, for instance, 5G has the potential to maybe even make Wi-Fi obsolete because of the bandwidth that it has and the reach and so forth. Now. How well will it be implemented? How quickly will it be implemented here? Because typically we receive technology at a lag from, let's say, up north, um, more, more metropolitan, more urban areas. Maybe that's going to be the disruptor, and that'll just take care of this issue uh, without even having to worry about Metro Wi-Fi the last mile. Um, but I don't think, honestly, in my opinion, it's not a technology issue. It's really a prioritization of education issue. We say day in and day out in the schools that education is the key to your future. I think once we all really believe it and apply it, then a lot of these other issues that we're identifying as impediments or barriers will just melt away. And I, and I hope we get to that point while I'm alive. And I think we will. Good. That's a very positive um, message there. So we had an advisory from Region 1 that you have made some significant investment and you are, yes. are going to be helping the school districts in, in this region. So if you can tell us about that, and, uh, that's, I think, the, 
the the key point that Region One wants to get across today. I would I would love to tell you about it. And actually, I'm going to preface this by saying it it is not it's a regional effort. It is not a Region One effort. And the reason why I want to say that is because. It has truly been a group effort on behalf of our school districts, technology directors, superintendents, the organizing boards for those districts. I mean, so many people have been involved in getting this, this, this idea off the ground, turning it into a project, and now making it into a reality. When we started out about two years ago, the idea was to identify some sort of an initiative that would have a regional impact without costing uh, a lot of money to the school district. So cost efficiency and cost savings is also top of mind because as you know, educational budgets typically aren't inflated and money gets appropriated back and forth here and there. Anyway, I'm not an accountant, but I know they should have more money and I wish they did. That being said, the the federal government in its wisdom enacted a program, uh, E-rate, several years ago. And basically what E-rate allows is for federal dollars to funnel down to districts and allows them to implement necessary technologies to try to close this digital divide gap. Um, this has been identified not just at the local and state level, but at the federal level, the global level, that we really do need to make sure if the internet's the way of the future, we all need to be connected to it. So when we identified this project, we saw that it would be a really great way, number one, to build infrastructure that while it exists, it's not applied consistently across our region. Um, and we had a model in other regions that have gone through these steps and met with wild success. So while we feel we were innovating, we actually had great frameworks to reference and say, that's how they did it right. Here's some pitfalls that we can avoid and we can be successful at this. Uh, the federal government through E-Rate and through USAC, the, the funding body, has made these funds available as long as you meet a certain set of criteria, which fortunately we do. Um, so really, the core of this project was getting the group of school districts together, understanding what really all of our issues are, and pinpointing that internet infrastructure, high-speed infrastructure, was one of the big needs that we have in order to be able to do some of these educational things that we talked about. Earlier I mentioned uh, virtual reality and augmented reality, distance education. You need bandwidth to do these things. You can't watch YouTube successfully over a very latency-oriented or small connection. If you want a child to be able to look at a computer-aided drafting drawing, an engineering drawing in real time and rotate it and zoom in and out, you can't do that on a slow computer. It ruins the experience. More importantly, education sits on top of this technology that we're implementing in our schools and our businesses. We need to have things like business continuity in place. We live in Hurricane Alley. If we get a Category 5 hurricane here and let's say half of our districts lose campuses, we cannot afford to have education halt for two months. I'm sure you all saw what happened in Rockport and Corpus Christi and places like that. That's really scary. A week, two weeks, a month out of educational time is huge, and, and those children lose that time, and we need to make sure that not only are we providing the infrastructure to allow them to learn, but we're also building safeguards in to protect that educational process moving forward. So a lot to say that we identified a fiber optic high-speed network here in our region is a good thing, and there'd be a lot we could facilitate once it was put into place. So we organized a consortium, went through the competitive solicitation process, and we dreamt big. We said when this network's in place, that's the first phase and it's the smallest phase. What can we do after that? Who has content that they would like to be able to share with the districts in real time? Who would like to offer services from their district to a district that doesn't have access to those services? Um, so these were the thoughts that were going through our minds when we started the project. And 
when you zoom out and look at it today, like, wow, look at what we look at what we did. But as we were in it, it was just kind of a day-to-day. What's the next step? What's the next piece of paperwork? What's the next meeting or phone call we have to have? And I'm really thankful today I'm get to sitting here and talking to you about the positive things we're going to get to do with it and not wondering, is it going to get approved or not? Um, and I'm really thankful to our districts for having stayed in and supported the process up to this point. So how long have you been working on the project and, and what's the cost? Or, and is all the money coming from the federal government to pay uh, for it? So we've been working on it for about two years, and actually a little bit longer than two years. I came on about two years ago, and the process had already, the idea had already been incepted, and we, we took it and started the paperwork process at that point. We are, because of the area that we're in, because of the financial situation, the economy here, uh, E-rate allows for a certain amount of discount. Basically, that's how. So they provide funding to you if you're going to go buy something for $100,000 and you qualify for, let's say, 90% discount, you pay 10, the federal government covers 90. So that's basically the way it works here. In the Rio Grande Valley, in our region, actually I should say the entire region, we are at an 89% discount. So we'll be able to bring this multi-million dollar infrastructure in for literally pennies on the dollar. And the fact that the federal government had the foresight to provide this opportunity to impoverished areas to make sure that they don't fall behind is fantastic. So as much as I could say about government, I will say that I am thankful that whatever representatives and whatever senators came up with this idea and implemented it, that they did do so. Because it's going gonna, it's gonna to allow our children to remain competitive and to become successful as they move forward in their academic careers. And when do you roll out the program? So now that we've gotten funding approval, we're looking to have our first set of districts come online by end of June, early July 2020. Um, we're going to be meeting with the awarded service provider, SmartCom Telephone, uh, to lay out a master schedule of implementation. Um, so, you know, that's going to involve on the technical side going out to the district, ensuring that their data center is ready to, to have the connection brought in. The telephone provider will bring the connection in. There's going to be some setup and configuration involved. All the stuff that the, the nerdier folk in the back do, um, the people that I like to interact with. Um, but we're looking at having most everybody online and using their, their enhanced service, hopefully by the end of summer, beginning of fall, across the region. Yeah. So once it's implemented, mm-hmm. what difference will a student see in their, their daily life uh, within the school environment, and what difference will a teacher see? That's a great example, and I'm going to give you an analogy that I, uh, whenever I talk technology, I, I, I imagine myself, how would I explain this to my dad? My dad's a, a business person by trade. He's got an accounting background. So if I had to compare it, imagine you were, you were in a house and your home has a two-inch water pipe and you're servicing four or five people taking showers, washing clothes, and so forth. And all of a sudden, five more people move in and the water pressure drops all of a sudden. What this project is going to do is it's going to take that two-inch water pipe and it's going to increase it to be about a foot in diameter. So you'll be able to get a lot more of that speed, a lot more what we call bandwidth through that pipe. Most of our schools here are operating in the one to two gigabit range. Orion by default, Orion's the name of our consortium, is going to increase that to 10 gigabit. So anywhere from an order of one to five magnitude greater, depending on what their current service levels are. And we were able to save people on average between two and 400% of their current internet cost based on this consortium. So earlier when I mentioned we were looking for wide impact cost efficiency, this project hit both and it hit it very aggressively. So if I'm understanding you correctly, it could be five to ten times faster and yet the cost is going down? Absolutely. That doesn't seem right. It doesn't and and I think that's something (laughs) that we need to be fully aware of. 
collective purchasing, when we pool our resources together and we make our needs and wants known to these major providers, they will play ball with us. We just have to get together and work together instead of being islands of one. Now, I say that, but I say that knowing that at our school districts we have an incredible amount of talent and to point to this day, they have done it on their own. But if you can get more for less doing it together, it just makes sense to do that. And our districts very quickly recognized that and very quickly supported this idea and put in a monumental amount of work to get us to where we are. And now they're going to reap the benefits, and they should. So up until this Orion project, this, every school district was doing their own thing. Correct. So some were more successful than others. Some hadn't embraced it, perhaps. Well, you know, some some may have uh, less of a need for more bandwidth than others. Some uh, may not be able to afford it, for instance. Some may be just geographically too distant to a provider, and the provider can't bring the connectivity out to them. What Orion did here, when we wrote our, our request for proposal, we built in some constraints on the project. And we said, regardless of where the district is located, regardless of where campus is located, for that matter, the speed has to meet this minimum criteria of 10 gigabit per customer, regardless of size, usage, and so forth. And regardless of where they're located, the provider will bring the line out to them. So even if you're 50, 60 miles away from the existing infrastructure, bring a line out to you. Um, and that's the power of doing procurement as a large body. You can make those kinds of demands. So does every school district get this, or do they have to buy in and, and, and say, we want to join? So there is, there is a, a couple of steps that districts had to follow. The first and foremost was authorizing Region 1 to submit an application on their behalf, including them, because districts are independent taxable entities, so they need to basically give us permission to include them. And then there is a, a cost component, of course. Um, Region 1 basically pays the same rate. So we all got a deal on the internet service uh, to, be, to be trite. Um, every district will pay into it. Every district is guaranteed that minimum, which is a huge amount of bandwidth, honestly. Um, it meets the FCC's one megabit per student guidelines, which we were very cognizant of. But more importantly, our provider kind of sweetened the pot, if you will. If any of our districts use 85% of their allotted bandwidth in their first four years, the provider will double it for them for free. Unheard of, unheard of, if you talk to Time Warner or Spectrum or any of these other companies to just get double what you're using for no cost, that just doesn't happen. Um, so the districts do pay into it uh, based on their tiering, and we try to do that um, so that a smaller district, we did an analysis, our smaller districts that have fewer students necessarily will use less bandwidth, so they pay a little bit less, and our larger districts who have more students tend to do a little bit more, pay a little bit more. And in that way, we were able to make sure that we built a baseline across the region so that nobody was really left behind or not getting the same level of service. And we thought that was the most fair, consistent way of approaching this kind of a, uh, I'm going to call it an improvement project, because I really do see it as improving the infrastructure of the region uh, uh, for our schools. Obviously, once this, <coughs> excuse me, once this gets implemented, um, educational attainment rates should go up. Um, students are going to have more access to 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 the education mm. that they're looking for, the parents are looking for. But outside of the school districts and the, the and the school life itself, does the greater community benefit in any way? Absolutely. So I mentioned earlier that that's a great question. I'm glad you asked that. Uh, E-rate is not only limited to schools. Uh, public libraries are also E-rate entities, and we have several public libraries that thought it was a smart idea to join the consortium, so they'll be getting the bulk of their internet service as well. 
Now, as you're aware, when you go to a library, Wi-Fi is typically free. Um, those libraries can make that bandwidth available to the general public and create learning spaces where it's not the full step that we need to take, but libraries are typically located in communities where there's a need for books and so forth, but now if they're able to offer high-speed internet as well, maybe those children that don't have direct access to it at home, maybe they can walk a block and go study in the library instead of having to go all the way to school to do the work or just not be able to do it, period. So it's a small step toward, I think, where we need to be, but it was a great kind of side effect or side benefit for the community in that libraries were able to take advantage. And I, I, I'm a really big proponent of libraries. I think it provides safe spaces to learn and to, and to just be. Um, and I think us being able to provide that service to them or include them was, is huge for our communities. Um, there's a few things that I wish libraries could do that I can't say because there's constraints on the E-rate program, so I'm going to hold those for me, but there are a lot of possibilities if you have creative directors at libraries that they could do with this internet, and I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Fair enough. The plan is now that we have the project approved and we're able to show proof of concept of implementation, I want to revisit with them and say, you know, there may have been some trepidation to begin with, but now we've gotten it put in, people are taking advantage, the costs are lower, Maybe you'd want to reconsider, you know, look at what they're able to do with these things. So the, the goal is to make sure that at least everybody understands what it is that they're able to take advantage of. And they choose not to, that's, you know, that's their prerogative. But For those that do, yeah. will they be getting faster speeds? The same 10 gigabits that everybody else will. And most of our libraries are using a fraction of that currently. So not only will it be better for them today, but they're going to hedge against the future. But the, your, your message to those librarians and those cities that you know operate the libraries, look, take a look at this. This may interest you. It's a good alternative, um, and it's coming from a reputable provider, and it's it's steeped in education, and they're educational entities. I feel are at, at their core. So take a second look if you haven't already. Yeah, why not? Ali, is there anything we've missed? Any other points that you would like to get across to to the listeners and to the readers about this incredibly exciting? Uh, development in the life of the Rio Grande Valley. Actually, yeah, I, I would like to say it's it's exciting to me because I'm a, I'm a technology worker and and just getting to work on things like this is interesting. But what I'd like to get across to anybody reading or listening to the story is that the technology is the smallest part of what we're doing right now. Um, when we do these things, everyone here thinks about either their own children sitting in a classroom or themselves when they were in a classroom or those kids that are going to come in the future sitting in a classroom, they're going to be the doctors and the lawyers and the nurses and the, and the engineers of tomorrow and they're going to be taking care of us. And it behooves us to make sure that they have the best of what we can offer and the best of what's available. And it shouldn't matter to us that there's red tape or cost or geography or anything in the middle of that. We need to find solutions to this and we need to make sure that we bridge those gaps, the digital divide being one of them. I, I don't want to downplay the importance of this technology for our region, but I do want to heighten the sense of urgency around education and making sure that that opportunity is available for everybody and that our students actually do take advantage of it. So um, the, the world is our future, kids are our future, that song. They used to tell us when we were in school, stay in school. I would go a step further and say take advantage of these opportunities that are trying to be provided for you to the students. Mr. Ali Kolodus, thank you so much for today's interview. We've certainly learned a lot, an incredibly exciting uh, project for, for Region 1 and all the school districts to be working on, so important in the Valley, which is, like you said earlier, um, tends to, to, to get there a bit, a bit slower than other parts of the country. And so this is, seems, seems to be a tremendous breakthrough. 
So uh, congratulations, and we'd like to keep in touch with you. Absolutely. You know, at each step of the way now, as as it all rolls out, and uh, do stories about these the successes that will follow. We would love to share. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Region 1 Chief Technology Officer Ali Kulahus recently made a presentation to the Texas Education Agency. The Region 1 Education Service Center serves over 437,000 students in eight South Texas counties. 